Have you ever been taught anything by someone that you believe to be a credible source and you believed it only to come to find out that it was wrong? When I was a kid in elementary school, I was going to a Baptist school and my teacher in our little science class, or our little, I guess it was a science class, told us, and they were teaching, they had intermixed the Bible stories with creation, which was a good foundation. And they told, you know, they, when they told the story of Adam and Eve and how the Lord took one of Adam's ribs and gave it to Eve, she told us that men only had 23 ribs and women had 24. And that was a popular belief a while back. And, and I believe that up until... I was married before I realized that that wasn't true. And it was one of those things that my teacher told me in elementary school, and I believed it. And, you know, even if there was to be a discussion, you weren't going to change my mind because I really believed it. And I think it was Rebecca and I that were talking one time early on in our marriage, and, and, I, and we got to talking about it. I said, well, men only have 23 ribs. And she goes, that's not true. I said, well, yeah, it is. I was told, my teacher told me that it was true. And, and no, it's not true. And so you do the counting thing, like one, two, three. You know, look, I'm missing one over here, see? And, uh, and then I came to do a little bit of research, and it doesn't take long to realize, you know what, no, maybe Adam only had 23 ribs, but men and women both have 24 ribs. But that kind of mentality that I had when I had been taught it by somebody that I believed was reputable, and I don't believe she misled uh, led me intentionally, but it just kind of sunk in on my mind, and it stayed there. Well, that's the kind of thought or the mentality that Paul's up against as he's penning the book of Romans. Because the Jewish people that have now become Christians that would be living in Rome, they have this mentality that was ingrained in them from the time that they were very young. They were raised as being Jewish. And although, here is, is just to, not to confuse you, Paul's writing this letter to the Romans, and some of the people in the church were Gentiles. Many of those believers in this church in Rome were of Jewish descent. Because it, it was, Christianity came out of Judaism. And when they look back on their culture, the things they had been taught, the things they had been told, they remembered things like that they were righteous before God because they were Jewish, because of the, way, because of the family they were born into. They were righteous before God because they were children of Abraham. There was something special about them. They were righteous before God because they, you know, the Jews had the law of God and they were, they were to represent God to the people. So they believed there was something special. And in previous chapters, Paul has done a pretty good job of, of, of refuting that argument. He's gone to the scriptures, he's, he's, he's used logic, he's used reasoning, and he's established that righteousness before God or being right with God came by faith in God. He talks about that. And he's going to, again, drive that point home again this morning. You say, Rob, why is he taking so long to get us to this point? Why does he, you know, we already get it. Faith, salvation is by faith, not of works. But Paul understands, and this morning he's going to anticipate some questions. You know, there's always the, you know, the, the person that would always have a, well, okay, that, I, I've been taught this, you're saying that, but what about this? And that's what Paul's going to answer this morning is, what about some of the this? What about this? Just by way, way of reminder, it's important to remember that his thesis statement in the first chapter, verses chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, Paul said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. I'm not ashamed of it. it means not, not that he's not embarrassed to share it, that it will stand up to the argument. He's going to continue his argument this morning. I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it's the power of God to salvation for everyone, and that's the key, everyone who believes for the Jew first and also for the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. 
So Paul makes these statements in this, in this chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. He's not ashamed of the gospel. The gospel is the power of God to salvation. The gospel is for everyone who believes. And the gospel reveals the righteousness of God. Now, after successfully proving in the first three chapters that salvation is available to everyone and comes through belief on Jesus Christ, Paul anticipates these questions that would be coming from a Jewish believer. Because what Paul's basically saying is, listen, your salvation isn't dependent on your heritage or your culture. And they were going to push back. They were going to say, that's not what we've been taught. That's not what the rabbis taught us. That's not the things that we've been shown. And, and Paul's going to anticipate that. Look at chapter 3, verse 31. Because the logical question would be, say, Paul, if all of a sudden my heritage doesn't matter, then you're saying the law is void. You're saying the law, the rules of God, none of that matters. Just skip over it, forget all of it. And Paul says in chapter 3, verse 31, he says, do we then make void the law? This is the, the Hebrew law, through faith. Look what he says, certainly not. No, on the contrary, we establish the law. When he says, do we, make, do, we, do we make void the law? He says, do we let the law come to an end? Is that it? Is it over? And Paul says, certainly not. It means absolutely no. It's an emphatic no. We're, it's not over. No, we're not done. Instead, we're going, to elect, we're going to establish the law. And that word for establish, it means to stand. We're going to let the law stand. The law's purpose was to show you that you couldn't keep the law. That was the problem with the law. And we talked about that even in our Christian life. You can set rules for yourself. You can say, I'm going to be a better Christian, so I'm going to get up in the morning and do my devotions. And you might do that for a day or two or a week, but eventually what happens? You go to bed late and you sleep in because you're tired or you don't get up. And if your relationship with God is based on you getting up at 4.30 in the morning to do two hours of Bible study the first morning that you don't have that, then you, all of a sudden you find that relationship severed because you didn't do your part. You didn't keep the law that you placed on yourself. And Paul's realizing that this is what they're saying. You know, Paul, so we don't need the law, Paul. Paul says, no, no. We need the law because it shows us where we fall short. And then he goes on in chapter 4. He says, what then shall we say that Abraham, our father, has found according to the flesh? So what has Abraham found according to the flesh? And the flesh, it means, what does that mean? What does he mean the flesh? Because I want to make sure we understand these words. It means your body. What has Abraham accomplished with his physical body? That's what the word flesh means. It's your body. It's my, my hands, my arms, my legs. What, what has he accomplished what has he found means to learn something previously not known, frequently involving an element of surprise, to learn, to find out, to discover. What was, in other words, what was added to Abraham in his flesh? What was it that he gained by, by following God? What, was it, what, was it, what, is, what, what part of salvation was added in his flesh? There was none. It was nothing. Paul's going to go on to show us that. Because if it was, then God would be in debt to Abraham. Then God would owe Abraham something. Look what he says in verse 2. For if Abraham was justified by works, that's his, the works of his flesh, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Now to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace, but as debt. But to him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. Now let's pause there for a minute. For if Abraham was justified by works, what does justified mean? We talked about it last week. It means real simply, justified never sinned. So if you're justified means that God sees you just as if you had never sinned. What part of Abraham was justified by works? Not, no part of it. 
If it was, if my flesh or your flesh or Abraham's flesh could do something to justify us before God, then we would have something to boast about. We'd have something to brag about, right? Look what I've accomplished. Look what I've done. I've done it in my own flesh. I've got up every morning at 4.30 for the past 27 years and studied my Bible. Look what I've accomplished. And that would be a great thing, but it wouldn't save you. It would be a wonderful thing. Your relationship with God would grow tremendously, but that's not what would save you. Because if, that one, if it was that one morning that you were sick and didn't get up, then that would be what ruined you. So what's justified is, what, what does he have to boast about? Nothing, but not before God. Look what he says. Paul says, for what does the scripture say? I love it. Paul brings them back to the Bible. That should be the end of all of our arguments. What's the Bible say about that argument? What's the Bible say about that question? What's the scripture say? And then he quotes in Genesis. He says, Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Abraham believed God. It's accounted. That word for accounted, it means to impute, to credit, to put on your account. It's like, it would be like somebody just kept putting money into your bank account. You went to the, you went to the store, you, char- you went over to Kohl's after church, you bought some new clothes, spent a hundred bucks, and boom, there's another hundred bucks back in there. That's, that's the way that it, that's what it means. It's encountered, it's imputed, it's put back on your account. So you're no longer in debt, you're back, you're back right up where you started. You, you couldn't outspend it. It's accounted to him for righteousness. But notice, notice when it is accounted to him for righteousness. Or right, let me back up real quick. The Apostle Paul does not say that Abraham was made righteous in all of his doings. It doesn't say that he was made righteous. It says it was accounted to him for righteousness. But God accounted Abraham as righteous. Our justification is not God making us perfectly righteous, like perfect on this earth, but it's counting us as perfectly righteous. After we're counted righteous, then God begins to that work in us that's going to make us righteous, that will be fulfilled on the day that we meet him face to face through our salvation. So it was accounted to him for righteousness. If the things Abraham had done for God are the things that make him righteous, then, he would, then God would actually be in debt to Abraham. Let me, let me see if I can explain it to you this way. Most of you went to work this week. And at the end of the week or the end of two weeks, you get a paycheck, don't you? When you get a paycheck, isn't that what's just owed to you? I mean, does the boss do anything special? You know, when he pays you for your 40 hours, has he done anything special, especially nice for you? No, he hasn't given, is there, is there any, has he given you something that you don't deserve? No, you, you're giving him exactly what he deserves, or you're giving her exactly, you worked 40 hours, you get X amount of dollars per hour, or salary, or whatever it is, and you get that paycheck. That's not what God's grace is. You see, grace is getting something that you don't deserve. You know, when you earn, if we were to earn our righteousness, then God would only be giving us what we deserve. But when we do something, when God gives us something that we don't deserve, that's what grace is. Grace is getting, what we, uh, is getting something that we don't deserve. Mercy is not getting what we do deserve. That's when we deserve death and hell. God says, I'm going to withhold that from you. I'm going to give you my grace, which is what we don't deserve. Understand the difference? So God's grace is something that we don't deserve. Now, he says to, to Abraham, what does the, Paul says, what does the Bible say? Abraham was counted righteous. He was counted righteous because he believed God and not because what he did for God. That was Genesis chapter 15, verse 16. Now, have you ever felt like you've done something for God and then maybe something that you consider bad happens in your life and you start to question God and you start to think, you know, God, I went to church every day this month or I did this for you or I went and I, I gave money and now my, now my bills aren't getting paid. 
And I, I did this thing for you, Lord. I, I, I did, you know, when we first came to Cumberland, we'd been here about a year, and my wife got sick with Lyme disease. And uh, she was sick for two years, and uh, real sick with Lyme disease. And there was a part of me that said, you know, Lord, we left Florida, and here we are in Cumberland, and now my wife's sick. Couldn't you at least, you know, protect her from getting sick? And I realized that's me trying to work for the Lord. That's a works-based thing. That's me saying, God, you owe me something. You're, I'm in, you're indebted to me because I'm doing something for you. That's not the heart that we should have as believers. We shouldn't be, you know, God's not indebted to us for anything. And that's exactly what, uh, what Paul's saying here. He says, now to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace, but as debt. So if you're doing something for God in your flesh, and this is for salvation, by the way, because we're going to talk about works in just a second. If I'm doing something, if you think that the things that you're doing for God are making you right with God, you're wrong. You're wrong. You're looking for God to owe you something based on what you're doing. And that's what Paul's fighting against. That's what he's arguing against. He says, now to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace, but as debt. But to him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith, his faith is counted for righteousness. His faith is counted for righteousness. So Paul's taking the emphasis off the works. He's putting it on faith. He's told them the word says this. And then in verse 6, he says, and by the way, David talked about this too. David, you know, your, your, your beloved King David, he said this too. And he goes on to say in verse 6, just as David also described the blessedness of man, whom God imputes righteousness apart from works. Verse 7, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man whom the Lord shall not impute sin. So David talked about this. One commentator put it this way. He said, no sinner, and try he ever so hard, can possibly carry his own sins away and come back cleansed of guilt. No amount of money, no science, no inventive skill, no armies of millions, nor any other earthly power can carry away from the sinner one little sin and its guilt. Once it is committed, every sin and its guilt cling to the sinner as close as does his own shadow, cling to all eternity unless God carries them away. Have you ever felt the weight of the guilt of your sin? You ever felt it? Do you know that God is the only one that can remove that? You can try to forget about it. You can look at the things you did, and you can feel sorry for doing it. You can feel, I wish I wouldn't have done that. I'm sorry that it made a mistake. And look at the impact it had on my family. Look at what it caused in my life. Look at the consequences that I'm bearing. The guilt will go away when you realize you're forgiven by the grace of God. That's really cool. Think about that for a minute. So all the things that you've done before the day that you followed Christ, and I would be willing to bet that if we were to go around the room and say, all right, give me your worst sin, give me the thing that you're most embarrassed about, and we would never do that. But let's just say we were, and you were to stand up and you're going to say yours, and there's a little competition starts, and somebody else says theirs, and somebody else says theirs. Do you know how much guilt can be removed when you give it to Christ? When you nail it to the cross, as the Bible says, that you no longer have to, I'm not saying the consequence will go away. The consequence may stay. But the guilt for this sin can be left behind. That's what he's saying here. The guilt can be removed because it comes, because when you carry the guilt, you're looking at your own actions in your flesh. You're not looking at the grace of God. And God says, I have enough grace for you. I can cover that from you. Anybody in here have some sins that need to be covered in the past? I do. I'm really glad that I have the grace of God. Paul says, Abraham talked about it. Abraham was righteous because he believed God. 
And just at a just just by point, just by way of reminder, Abraham believed God in Genesis chapter 15. The law didn't come into existence until much later. He was counted righteous before the law came in. He was counted righteous before the covenant of circumcision came in. He was counted righteous when he packed up his family and he moved. As God said, I'll show you a place that I want you to move to. Abraham was counted righteous when he did that. Imputed righteousness is given and it's not earned. It's given and it's not earned. Verse 9. Does this blessedness then come upon the circumcised only or upon the uncircumcised also? For we say that faith was accounted to Abraham for righteousness. How then was it accounted? Well, how is it Abraham was accounted righteous is what they're asking. While he was circumcised or uncircumcised? Not while circumcised, but while uncircumcised. And he received the sign of the circumcision, a seal of righteousness of the faith which he had while still uncircumcised, that he might be the father of all those who believe, though they are uncircumcised, that the righteousness might be imputed to them also, and the father of the circumcision to those who not only are of the circumcision, but who also walk in the steps of faith, which our father Abraham had while still uncircumcised. And you go, Rob, what's the deal with the uncircumcision thing? Why are we talking about that on Sunday morning? You know, why, what's, what's going on with that? I don't have time this morning to go into all of it for you, but I just want to share something with you just in case you didn't know. God made a promise to Abraham, and he told Abraham he was going to make him a great nation. And as a covenant or as a sign of that promise, he had Abraham circumcised and all of the people of Abraham circumcised. And circumcision is just what you think of when I say it. It's not something, it's, there's no special meaning to it. It's exactly what you might think of. And if you don't know what it is, ask your neighbor, they'll tell you. So God made this covenant with Abraham, and it was evidenced by this this fact of circumcision that's why the jewish people would look and go well i'm circumcised so i must be right with god all of the gentile world was uncircumcised at this point so they would be placing their hope in their circumcision in the fact that abraham was their father in the fact that they had the law and now paul says he makes this point he says does this blessedness then come upon the circumcised only or on the uncircumcised also well the answer would be it comes upon both for we say that faith was accounted to Abraham for righteousness. How was it accounted? Or better yet, when was it accounted? And Paul basically says this. In Genesis chapter 15, verse 16, it said we read that Abraham was counted righteous because he believed God. Fourteen years later, after he was already accounted righteousness, in Genesis chapter 17, is when he was given the covenant of circumcision. So he was counted righteous before that covenant ever came, and the law didn't come until much later into the book of Exodus. So we, if we are counted righteous by faith, not by our rules or by our law or even by circumcision, Paul's saying this righteousness is available to everybody. Because Abraham wasn't even Jewish when he was counted. He, he, was, just a, he, was, he was living in Haran. He, he was a Gentile. There, there was no Jewish culture. It didn't even exist at this point. So Paul's going all the way back to the beginning. So listen, if it was available to Abraham, it's available to everyone. And his righteousness came not by, not by the, the covenant, not because of who he was. It became because he believed God. And that's the foundation for our salvation, because we believed God. Since Abraham's righteousness came before the covenant of circumcision, the Gentiles could be righteous by walking in the steps of faith that Abraham walked in. It was his, it was his faith that made him righteous, so we, can, we have the same thing available to us. 
if, if Abraham was made righteous because of the, being faithful before he was circumcised, then that is available to anybody if they'll just walk in the steps of faith that Abraham walked in. If they'll live, if they'll believe like Abraham believed. Look what he says in verse 13. For the promise that he would be the heir of the world was not to Abraham or to his seed through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if those who are of the law are heirs, faith is made void and the promise made in no effect. Because the law brings about wrath. For where there is no law, there is no transgression. This is a promise to Abraham that did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. If you are of the law and heirs of Abraham's righteousness, then faith is made void or of no meaning. Meaning if you believe that salvation comes just because of who you are, because of what you've done, or because the family that you're born into, or because your grandmother saved, or because your mom saved, or because this person in your family saved, then, then faith means nothing to you. It's, it's made void. There, there's, you, you, you don't have to have faith because you believe that your salvation comes from who you are. It, it, just, it would be based on that family. It would be based on that connection. Whatever the connection is that to the thing or the person that you're saying my salvation comes from, it, it doesn't require faith. And he says the law only brings about wrath. The law only brings about wrath. Why does it bring about wrath? Because when there's a law, there's either you've either kept it or you've broken it, right? You, when you came to church this morning, you either broke the speed limit or you didn't. Is there, is there any in between in there? I mean, can, well, I... I no, it's clear. You either broke it or you didn't. If you went one mile an hour over, you broke it. If you stayed under it the whole time, then you kept the law. You see, there's no, there's no gray area in law. It's either right or it's wrong. You either broke it or you kept it. It's, it's very, very clear. It's very, very simple. And what he's saying is that it, because we break the law, anybody speed on the way to church this morning? Don't put your hands up. No. Because we are people... Now... Speeding is kind of funny because we all do it, right? We all do it. But we could, we, could, we could start listing off some more serious things that we do, and it wouldn't be as funny. But because we can't keep the law, because we fail day after day, moment after moment, time after time, anybody ever make a promise to God, I'm never going to do that again? You laugh. Yeah, that's what happens. I'll ne I'm never, Lord, I'll never say that again. I'll never think like that again. I'll never look at that again. I'll never do that. Lord, I'll never do that again, only to find yourself in the same boat, sometimes later the same day. Sometimes it lasts a week or a month because we can't keep it. We keep breaking it. And the whole idea, the Jewish people were given this wonderful law, but the whole idea was to show them. It, Paul will, will later say it's a tutor. It's a schoolmaster. It's something to teach them that you can't keep it. Instead, it was just the opposite. It, became, it was where they found their righteousness. I keep the law. I'm better than you because I have the law. I can do better than you. And they looked around and they compared themselves to everybody else. Well, I'm doing better at keeping the law than my neighbor is, so I must be more righteous than they are. No, no, that's not the way the law works. You're either guilty under the law or you're innocent under the law. There, there's no, and with God being a righteous judge, there's, no, there's not even an argument. There's not even a case. To, well, Lord, I didn't know the speed limit changed on Industrial Boulevard from 45 to 30. I didn't, I didn't know that. Yes, you did. You saw the sign. Look, I'll play back the video, God could say. There, there's, no, there's no argument. There's no excuses that could be made about that. It becomes very, very clear, very, very apparent. Where there is no law, there is no transgression. Transgression, the word actually means like a line drawn. It's like a line in the sand. If there is no law, if there was no speed limit, and I said, anybody break the speed limit this morning? What would you say? No. Doesn't exist. 
No, nobody broke it. It doesn't, the government has put no speed limit. In Germany, they have, uh, what is it, Gary, the Autobahn? Is there a speed, parts of it have no speed limit. You can't break the speed limit if there's no speed limit. It doesn't exist. And that's what Paul's saying here. There's no, if there's no line to be crossed for where there is no law, there's no sin. There's no transgression. It can't, it can't be there. In verse 16, therefore, it is of faith that it might be according to grace. So the promise might be sure to all the seed. Notice it says that the promise might be sure, might be sure to all the seed, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father, not just of the Jews, but of us all. Therefore, it is of faith that it might be according to grace. Faith and grace are related just like the works and the law are related. Faith and grace go together. One commentator put it this way. He said, to speak technically, we are not saved by faith. We are saved by God's grace. And grace is appropriated to us through faith. Let me say it again. We are not saved by, we are not, to be technical, we're not saved by faith. We're saved by God's grace. And then we receive God's grace through our faith. In other words, salvation is by grace through faith and nothing else. Salvation is by grace through faith and nothing else. If you've ever wondered, am I really saved? Am I really saved? Chances are when you wonder that question, you're looking to the way that you're living your life to answer it. You're not looking to the object of your faith. You're looking at your life going, well, how am I doing? How, how am I living? And you might look at your neighbor and go, well, I heard the family next door having a fight last night in their house. Boy, that was a knockdown drag out. We didn't have that, so I must be okay. Or you might be looking at your failures in your life going, I, I don't know, I just keep failing, I keep failing. I wonder if God can really save me because I keep failing. Then you can be rest assured that you're looking for salvation based on your works, not based on grace. Not ba- it's, it's not based on grace that way. Salvation is by grace through faith and nothing else. If you have to wonder if you are really saved, then you might be looking at your works to justify you. You're looking at the life that you're living. You're, am, I, am I living a good enough life for God? It's not about am I living a better life, a more righteous life than somebody else. The bottom line is we've all broke the law at some point, in some way, in some form. We've all broke it, and we all need a Savior. When we understand salvation is by faith, we realize that salvation is completely apart from your works, that they're completely apart. Now, the logical question that comes up at this point, I don't have to do anything. I can just believe and be saved, and I'm, I'm home free. I don't have to do anything. Well, two, I believe that question. It's like this. Grace and faith, Charles Spurgeon put it this way. He said, grace and faith are in agreement and will draw together in the same chariot. But grace and works are contrary. To the one, the one to the other and to one to the other and pull opposite ways. In other words, they're pulling against each other and therefore God has not chosen to yoke them together. They're opposite one another. So when it comes to the question, well, then I don't have to do anything. No, no, you're right. You don't have to do anything. But true faith will produce works in your life. And I want to make sure we understand that. My salvation comes by faith in the Lord and nothing else, nothing else. But true faith is going to produce good works. It's going to produce changing works. It's going to produce something in your life. Look at verse 17. We're going to kind of look at that. As it is written, I have made you a father of many nations. 
In the presence of him whom he believed, God who gives life and dead and calls to those things which do not exist as though they did. Who contrary to hope, in hope believed so that he became the father of many nations according to what was spoken, so shall be your descendants. The fact that Abraham was the father of many nations physically is a miracle, wouldn't you think? I mean, the whole, the whole history of, of Israel is unbelievable. It's a miracle. But the fact that he's the father of many nations spiritually is also a miracle. It was a work of God, and Abraham didn't do that. He couldn't have created that on his own. He didn't have the ability to look, I'm going to make this promise of God come true on my own behalf. I'm going I'm to see this through. I'm going to force it through. It says God has the ability to give life to the dead and call those which don't exist as though they did exist. Isn't that amazing? Just a glimpse into the power of God. God can give life to the dead. He can call people as, that don't exist as if they did exist. He sees what's taking place in the future. Matter of fact, in Ephesians 2.1, it says, he made, And you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins. You he made alive. You were dead in trespasses and sin. He called to you and he called you out of it. You gave your life to him and he made you alive now. You're no longer under the bondage of your sin. You're no longer, not that you're perfect, but you're no longer, you're, you're now made alive, a, a living a life for Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. He made us alive when that. Think about Abraham's story. Abraham was past the childbearing years. Sarah was past the childbearing years. Abraham, God called Abraham's womb back to life so that she could have a child to make, make uh, this promise to Abraham come to, come to pass, come to, come to fruition. Chuck Smith said, I'm greatly comforted when God speaks about me as righteous, justified, glorified, holy, pure, and saintly. God can talk about such things before they exist because he knows they will exist. You see, when God calls us righteous and he speaks of us justified, you look at your life and go, that's not me. And God says, but it will be. It's coming a day. It will be. I'm calling it. It doesn't exist now, but I'm calling it. I'm going to show you. I can see what you're going to become. I, I know what I'm making with you. You're like clay in my hands. I'm forming you. I'm shaping you. I'm creating you for a purpose, and I know what it's going to become. No, you don't see it right now, but it's coming. And like I said before, sometimes when all this, when you, when you stack grace and, and, and salvation against works, there's this tendency to go, well, I don't have to do anything. And Paul would say no to in later chapters of that. But I want to suggest to you this. All true believers, like Abraham, obey God. And that produces the works in our life. Obedience is faith in action. That's what it is. It's taking our faith in God. When we obey God, we're just taking it and we're living it out. We're, it's faith in action. You are to walk in the steps of faith of Father Abraham. His faith did not sit still. It moved him from one city to the next. It moved him across, across the promised land. It moved him. It took steps. You must take steps also by obeying God because you believe in him. Our faith needs to produce action in our life. Our faith needs, what steps are you taking in your life as a result of your faith? Is there any? Or is there things that you've done as a result? You know, I mean, don't look at my life. I left Florida and you guys know my story. Those are my steps of faith. What are your steps of faith? Are there, are there, is there a, you know, as is, is we come to church, as we learn this, are, are we challenged with, am I, am I afraid to take a step of faith? Or is my faith just really, I just don't know that it's going to move me. You see, true faith will move you. It will produce those works in you. And it doesn't mean that everyone's going to take this man, you know, monumental step of faith. And it was a big step to move from Florida to Cumberland to plant a church. And, and that wasn't, I want to be clear, that wasn't my first step of faith. You know, my, I can tell you my first step of faith was when God said, I want you to stop doing this. 
I want you to stop thinking like this. I want you to stop going here. I want you to stop talking like that. It was little steps that I took. One little step at a time leads to a gigantic step. You know, before you can get from here to there, you've got to take one step. And so don't be afraid to take a step of faith. It's not, it, it's, it's something that, it, it, it's just, a, it's just, it shows our faith. You know, it shows that our faith is alive. It shows that our faith is true. It shows that our faith is, you know, we're moving forward in it. He goes on in verse 19. And not being weak in faith, he did not consider his own body already dead, since he was about a hundred years old, and the deadness of Sarah's womb. He did not waver at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strengthened in faith, giving glory to God, being fully convinced that what he had promised, he was also able to perform. And therefore, it was accounted to him for righteousness. Abraham's faith was strong, but it was strengthened when the circumstances of his life became physically impossible. God, you told me you were going to make me the father of many nations. I tried it on my own, had this Ishmael thing. It didn't work out for me. My wife, Sarah, she can't, uh, she can't have kids. And now she's too old to have kids, God. She's been, all the, all the biological process, it's all gone. It's, you know, she's been through menopause. She, she's, not, she doesn't, she's not biologically able to have kids at this age. But notice it strengthened Abraham's faith. It didn't weaken it, it strengthened it. He did not consider his own body. It wasn't in my own power, he said. I could, it, this, is, this is something in the hand of God. This is something that God's going to do because God made this promise. He was up against the impossible. He had a promise of God that was no longer physically possible. That's exactly what it was. And sometimes when we look through the scriptures, you'll find a promise of God and you'll apply that to your life. That's impossible. It is if God's behind it. If it, it is if it's a promise of God. It will come to fruition. Abraham was 100 years old. Sarah was past the childbearing years. The biological process that allows women to have children was completely ended. It wasn't even a possibility. It wasn't even in the realm. Can you imagine being that age and having kids? I'm looking now going, I don't want any more. I've got four. That's good. I can't imagine being 100. Man. Abraham didn't look at his circumstances. He looked at his God. And he said, although my circumstances, although science, although it would seem impossible, it's not in, all things are possible with God. Instead, he looked at the promise of God. He said, God, you promised. You promised that I would be a father of many nations. You know, he never got to see that promise fulfilled. Yet he believed it. You know, so often we hear a promise of God. We, God, I want to see it. I want to, let me see it this week. And I, not even, don't even wait till Friday. I want to see it tomorrow on Monday. Abraham never saw it, but yet he still believed it. He saw it fulfilled from heaven, but he never saw it fulfilled in his lifetime. He believed. He was strengthened in faith by the impossible conditions. Oh, how as Christians we look around at the world around us and the impossible conditions seem to weaken our faith. Would we be people who look to God and say, God, you can do whatever you want with this next election. God, you can do whatever you want in my life. If you call me to do something, I know that you can strengthen me to do it because you've made that promise. Do you have promises of God's word that you just hold on to? Do you have life verses that these are the things that God's promised and I, they're written in my heart, they're written in my, my book or my car or underlined in my Bible. They're, they're the things that I hold on to. Do you have those? These are the promises that they, you might not see them happen, but they will come to happen. They're going to take place. Abraham believed God in spite of the human impossibility. Notice he was fully convinced. Oh, we're a bunch of doubters, aren't we? Lord, life is hard. I don't know if I can do it. I don't know if I can make it. My job's tough. 
Like, yeah, we whine, we complain. Abraham was fully convinced that God could do the impossible. Fully convinced. Look what he says. Being fully convinced that what he had promised, he was also able to perform. And therefore, it was accounted to him for righteousness. If you are not fully convinced that Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins and you are saved, I don't know that it will be accounted to you for righteousness. It ha- you have to be fully convinced that he's done that. We can't just pray a prayer. You've heard me say this and just say a thing and there's, there's no magic wand or come forward or raise your hand or stand up or sit down. You have to be fully convinced that what he has said is true and it applies to you. Abraham was fully convinced that what he had promised, that's what God had promised, he was also able to perform and therefore it was accounted to him for righteousness. Are you doubting God? Or are you believing on his promises? Are you doubting? Or are you believing? Fully convinced. Are you fully convinced that as a believer in Jesus Christ, you are a child of the king? Are you fully convinced that as a believer in Jesus Christ, you are justified before God, which means you're just if I'd never sinned? Are you fully convinced of that? Are you fully convinced that before Jesus Christ, before God, that he's able to do all of the things that he's said in his word that, that apply to your life, they're all going to come true? Are you fully convinced? Let me ask you this. Are you blessed by the teaching of God's word here at Calvary Chapel? I'm fully convinced that when God says in his word, so shall my word be that goes forth from my mouth, it shall not return to me void. But it shall accomplish what I please. It shall prosper in the thing for which I send it. That's Isaiah 55. I'm fully convinced that the teaching of God's word will change your life. I'm fully convinced that by me getting up here, sharing with you from God's word, you are going to grow closer to God. That's why I do what I do. That's why I left Florida. Because if I wasn't fully, how would it be? Well, I don't know. God said this might work. So let me just see if, uh, well, I'm just going to, let's just pick Romans. We'll throw some things out. You know, know, the first four chapters can be kind of rough. Then it gets really good. If I wasn't fully convinced that this would impact your life, I wouldn't be here. Or I shouldn't be here, rather. If I wasn't fully convinced that the things that I'm teaching are true, if the things that I'm saying won't really change your life for eternity forever, then I have no business being up here. But here's the great thing. By being fully convinced, I get to watch God work. I get to, I get to be blessed by God bringing people. I get to be blessed. And you guys tell me the stories on how God's working in your lives, how God's working in your family, how God's working through the radio station. I get to hear those stories of what God's doing in our community. I would encourage you to talk to one another about it. Ask the person sometime when you meet somebody after church, what's God doing in your life? What's God doing in your family? Show me, tell, tell me, you know, give me some good, good stuff that God's doing. We need to hear that as Christians because sometimes we forget. It's not just our church that God's working in. There's other churches. God's working in our whole community. God's working in the whole world. But I'm fully convinced that as I teach you God's word, it'll change your life. That's why I can stand up here and guarantee you of it because it's not my promise. It's his promise. If you sit long enough, and you allow the word to enter your heart, you're going to change, and you're going to become more like God. It doesn't mean you won't ever be offended. It doesn't even mean that you'll always agree with what I say, because we might come to different parts of Scripture. We go, I don't know that I see it that way. That's okay. It's God's word. It'll accomplish what it sets out to accomplish. It'll do what it sets out to do. It will bring you where, it's, where, it, where it sets out to bring you. So it brings us to Paul. Why are you telling us all this? What's the big deal? Look at verse 23. We've spent all this time talking about Abraham and law. And what's what's going on here, Paul? Verse 23, 
Now it was not written for his sake alone that it was imputed to him. This is for Abraham. It wasn't written for Abraham's sake alone, but also for who? Us. Write me in there. Circle it and write me. It was written for me. It shall be imputed to me or us who believe in him who raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead who was delivered up because of our offenses and was raised because of our justification. Righteousness before God wasn't just for Abraham. Here where Paul's telling us it was for us. The example that Abraham sent, the obedience that he walked in was so that we could see it and we could walk in the same way. That we could do it. Abraham Abraham had to believe on the promise of God. We have to believe on the work of God through Jesus Christ. He tells us right there that Jesus was delivered up to be crucified for for our offense. Do you believe that? Jesus was raised up from the dead by God. Do you believe that? He was raised up because of our justification. Do you believe that? Do you believe that right now this morning, if you are in Jesus Christ, if, and that's a big if, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, if you are fully convinced that the work on the cross accomplished what he said it would accomplish, that you right now this morning are justified before God. Just if I'd never sinned. That God doesn't look back at this past week. It says he chooses to remember our sins no more. It doesn't say he forgets them. Because we forget. God doesn't forget. He chooses to remember them no more. He doesn't look at the past year. He doesn't look at the past 20 years. He doesn't, he doesn't go as far back to the, to the worst time in your life, the lowest part, the, the, the worst mistakes you made. God says, I don't, I don't remember that anymore. I choose not to remember that anymore. I see you. When I look out, I see you sitting there. I see you as justified because I know what you're going to become. You see, we don't get to see the future, but God looks like goes, I see what you're going to become. Whether you're older or younger, God says, I know what you're going to become. Someday you're going to stand before me justified because you were fully convinced that Jesus Christ died on the cross, that Jesus Christ paid the penalty for your sin. You were fully convinced that the blood that was shed covered your sin. You were fully convinced and you believe that. That's where your faith was put. He goes, now I see you justified. I see you righteous before me. Not that we're perfect. The process is is still going. Not there. But he sees us that way. I don't know about you, but I want to say, oh, thank you, Lord. I'm so glad that I don't have to stand in judgment today. I'm so glad that God's not looking at me going, oh, man, I don't know what I'm going to do with that one. He started out okay, but geez, I don't know, man, I'm really, he's, he's got me really stumped. And he looks at your life and goes, whoo, that's worse. God says, I see what you're going to become. I'm not done working in your life. Will you just let me keep working? I see that you're justified before me. You're righteous before me. Can you imagine what that means? To stand before a, before a holy God that knows you better than anybody and say, justified, never sinned. I don't see any of it. All I see is who you've become. All I see is that you're standing covered in the blood of Christ. The sin is no longer there. I don't know about you, but that causes me to worship. It causes me to pray. So as always, we're going to close our service with just a few minutes of prayer. And I want you to go to the Lord with thanksgiving this morning. I want you to, you know, sometimes we take a time of reflection where we have the Lord search our hearts. But I want you to go to the Lord and I want you to tell him how thankful you are that your sin is not being held against you. That you can stand before him, that he sees you as justified, that he sees you as righteous. If you don't know the Lord and you are carrying the guilt of your sin around, I want you to go to the Lord and I want you to drop it off at the foot of the cross this morning. 
I want you to tell him, admit that you're a sinner. I want you to tell him, ask him to forgive you for your sins. And I want you to, you know, agree to follow him for the rest of your life that you'll begin learning about him. Do that one-on-one between you and him. And if you make that choice, I want you to tell the person next to you that you made that choice. And you pray to the Lord just the way that you pray. Use the words that he puts on your heart. But if you already are the believer, just go and give thanks. Because wow, the promises that we have. You don't have to work for it. We don't have to earn it. It's through grace. So Father, we come before you now. Your grace, the cross, salvation, justification, righteousness, are all church words that hopefully we got a better understanding of, Lord. Hopefully we can really see that we, as believers, can drop off that guilt, that you'll carry it. We don't have to worry about it. We don't have to bear the burden. We can leave it at the foot of the cross. Lord, meet us now as we take this time. For those, if there's someone that doesn't know you, Lord, may, they, may today be the day that they give their life to you. Just you and them, Lord. May you just work in their heart in a way that they've never experienced. May the guilt and the shame be removed. May they leave here knowing that they're a different person. They've been born again. There's new life in them. So go before the Lord now just a few minutes on your own.